0: Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host. And my guest this week is an old friend of mine. And he's also a psychodynamic psychotherapist. His name is Orion Peterson. And in this episode, we have a really interesting conversation around emotional eating, and the roots of that, whether it's trauma or pain, but how emotional eating works, uh, how you can be more mindful about it, how you can change some of the patterns that lie behind emotional eating. And I think in some respects, we all have emotionally linked eating patterns. Certainly our emotions dictate a lot of our our actions, uh, and and pain is is bound into that as well, and our desire as human beings to, to change how we feel and get away from pain. So we talk a lot about that, and we touch as well on limiting beliefs, and how that's interlinked really with emotional eating, and how these sort of emotions and responses to emotions can really hold us back in life. So it's a fascinating discussion. Um, If you want to connect with Orion, I really recommend doing so. His website is www.se1, that's the number one, psychotherapy.com, so that's se1psychotherapy.com, His email address is Orion, O-R-I-O-N, at se1psychotherapy.com. And his contact details, I will publish all of that in the show notes as well. So this is Orion Peterson talking about the psychology behind emotional eating and limiting beliefs. Enjoy the show. Orion, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, no, excited to have you. So introduce yourself, if you will.
1: Uh, My name is Orion Peterson, as you know. And I'm a psychodynamic psychotherapist. And I suppose, um, in a kind of distilled way, psychodynamic really just means that I'm interested in terms of people's psychology um, in their early experiences and how their early experiences impact their lives today in an unconscious way. So, when you work with someone, uh, or when I work with someone, what I'm really interested in exploring with them are the thoughts and feelings uh, that sort of impact their behavior or drive their behavior and what connection they may have to mm. their early experiences that perhaps a lot of times people aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. and So that's where the unconscious element comes into it. So I suppose in, in, in terms of working with people, a large part of the focus is trying to bring some of what is unconscious into consciousness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think this one of the reasons I was keen to get you on the show, I think there's a lot of parallels in what you do and what I do, in you know, mm. understanding the psychology of people's behaviour, how they change, why they don't change, and some of the mm. things that we're going to get into on this show, so emotional eating, limiting beliefs, uh, why do we procrastinate as well, so mm. you know, we could we talk about all of that. But just briefly, your background wasn't in psychotherapy, was it? You, you've come from a different career, just talk to us briefly about that.
1: Mm. Mm. I started out in digital media. Um, I came out of university, and that was what was, you know, sort of the digital economy was kind of exploding at the time. And I originally studied political science and art history. And uh, the first job I was offered was was in a startup, and so I did that for about ten years. Um, but I suppose as part of my own journey, I started having a sense of um, wanting something more from what I was doing and wanting. Uh, I think a deeper sense of fulfillment and, mm. and, and being edified by what I did. And while I found what I did an intellectually kind of stimulating, I, I found it less and less fulfilling. And so about, uh, I guess, seven years ago now, I began a journey of retraining, really. And I first did a year-long introduction course to counseling skills, and um, yeah, it was called Counseling Skills, and uh, I can't, can't remember exactly. but. Um, I did that, and I did that really as a way of kind of putting my toe in the water, because mm. I had a sense that I think even in university I was interested in psychology, but I didn't end up studying it, and so um, I dipped my toe in the water, and I found ah, I really like this. This is this is this is really cool, and so from there I then embarked on a four-year postgraduate diploma program. Um, in which I got a postgraduate diploma in psychodynamic theory and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I then also spent uh, five years at a clinic in central London doing you know, the equivalent of, of, of a placement in a residency as part of that training. Um, and then when I finished that, uh, most recently in 2016, I embarked on an additional three-year program in adult analysis which is really working at depth with people. I do a placement in uh, a psychiatric facility, and I see people up to five or six times a week. Mm. And so it's really about um, psychotherapy, In sort of, again, in a very simplistic way, is, is, is once or twice a week. Um, but typically when you see people three, five, six times a week, that would be termed analysis, uh, adult analysis. And so that's what right. I... Uh, studying at the moment, and I'm in my second year of, of, of that training, mm. and uh, due to finish that next year.
0: Right, that's a lot of study.
1: It is. I mean, I think in total it, it will be about eight years. Um, wow. So, so yeah, it's been an intensive period, mm. but very rewarding as well.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, the mind is such a fascinating thing, and I'm very interested in a, just in a personal and very much ad hoc and recreational level in psychology. But part of what we do, obviously, is, is we, but, but we in, in body shot is, is we're change agents. We're trying to help people facilitate change and transformation. And to do that, I think you have to have some interest in psychology and emotional mm. intelligence mm. To, to work out how you can get people on side, how you can get them to affect the change. Um, some of the questions we ask people before they come on board is, well, three powerful questions. What is your intent? So what do you want to get done? What is it you want to transform or change or adapt? Why do you want it? And most importantly, the third question is, why do you want it now? Mm. And I think that mm. last one, you know, it, it, intellectually we know we shouldn't eat so much sugar, we shouldn't smoke, we shouldn't drink, we shouldn't do other sort of corrosive or damaging behaviours, but trying to change them or wanting to change them is one thing, but being absolutely ready to change now is, is quite another, I think. That, so there's so much of, of psychology bound up in everything, but particularly yes. in the line of work that we're both in. And mm. uh, One thing that I really wanted to talk to you about <coughs> first, it's something that comes up a lot, and that's the whole concept of emotional eating. In fact, I'm just halfway through a blog about, um, it's called, Can Digestion Affect Anxiety? Uh, and around, you know, serotonin resides in the gut, and it resides in the brain, more so in the gut, we believe, and how that Im- impacts anxiety. But obviously, if you, if you eat, and then there's serotonin in the gut, can the food affect the serotonin levels? Mm. Um, I think there's so much caught up in, in emotional eating. What are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a great question and I think that it's individual for, for everyone. Um, and, I, and I suppose the, what's interesting about uh, what you were saying about, you know, we're both f- thinking about psychology is that I think we probably end up approaching it from uh, the same thing but from different angles in that um, in thinking about even the points we're making about sugar and fat and, you know, there are certain things that we know Diagnostically, nutritionally, that maybe you know lead to a healthier lifestyle. Mm. Um, and those are established through what I would sort of classify as, as a medicalized approach to health, which is to say that in anything medicalized, you're looking at the whole, so you're looking at the collective, and you're trying to establish consistent patterns, and then you make a diagnosis based on those patterns that you see. And so in any kind of collective diagnostic kind of process, there's a smoothing out of any kind of individualities, uh, anomalies, or the sort of extremes on either end of the spectrum. I'm coming at it from the opposite end, which is I'm very interested in looking at the individual. Mm. And so why does this person have this particular relationship with food? What specifically about their life experience, their internal world, and the way that they approach the world, makes it uh, um, equal X. Um, and so, for example, in terms of thinking about emotional eating, what does that actually mean for the individual that, say, you're working with? And it may be that for some people, emotional eating is about comfort. It could be about control, and th- and that could also manifest in. Control could be, actually, I restrict what I eat in a very, um, a highly rigid way, Mm. or maybe I overeat, I I take in as much as I possibly can. And so, with each person, it can be highly, highly unique and individual. But the place that I tend to start with, with, uh, with anything that I'm exploring with somebody, is can we, first of all, identify the feelings and the thought patterns that are going along with the behavior. So, I don't know, when you eat the sugar, somebody has a craving and sort of they go and have the, they have the cake or the pastry or whatever it is. What is it actually that they're thinking about at the time? What may have occurred prior to them needing to eat? Was it some sort of conflict that they were engaged in in the office and so they needed some way to comfort themselves or feel more in control or whatever that is? it's going to be quite individual for everyone. And so it's interesting because I think what you're perhaps in some respects trying to do is marry the medicalized or the diagnostic with the individual. So when you meet with someone and you ask them those goals, you're actually perhaps getting a little bit of a sense of what makes them individual. Why do they need to do it now? Uh, Why do they want X? And that's really where I'm beginning. Is is what is it that's actually driving the particular behavior that somebody might be battling with? And in this case, mm. you know, they're they're battling with something about their emotional eating, um, and so it's really trying to understand what is the core, what are the core drivers for that behavior, and what are the emotions that are attached to that, and then really looking at the origin of those emotions, mm. because I think quite often what you find. Is that those emotions are very real, but they're actually displaced in time and space. So they may be an emotional response to a present situation that's actually linked to something much earlier. Um, but the way the psyche works is that when that first experience occurs, you know, early on, something could be traumatic, it sort of freezes and there's a developmental kind of um, stasis. And so it carries on through the rest of our lives. So, you know, I gave the example of, say, perhaps somebody having conflict at work. Um, having conflict may actually trigger some kind of early response, mm. and so people respond to it in the same way that they might have when they were much younger, when they didn't have the capacity to reflect, mm. when they didn't have the autonomy that one has as an adult, um, and so they respond in a perhaps a, kind of an infantile way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, that you could be in your 40s, 50s, (coughs) 60s at any age and still have that triggered emotional response from being very young. Mm. Um, Mm. How do you then get around that? How do you you treat that or approach it? Well, in a
1: nutshell, please. Yeah, Yeah, in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's. What are some of the techniques? Yeah. How do you approach it? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think the. one thing that's an interesting stat, just to you know, illustrate that point that you were just making about you know, someone who's 40 or 50 you know, having an emotional response that might be based in childhood is that, and I think a lot of people forget this, this isn't sort of a mainstream kind of understanding, but you know, 90% of the neural pathways that we have as an adult are formed in the first three years of life. Mm. So those kind of emotional, um, somatic, physical, kind of experiences that we have, because remember, pre-verbal, you know, the infant is a somatic kind of entity. So everything, the touch, the feel, the sound, um, the sight, sight isn't even fully formed in say the first six weeks of life, Um, all of that experience impacts the infant and its relational kind of patterns are formed in the first three years of life. And so if you imagine that there's any kind of disruption, significant disruption, you can understand how and why somebody could be 40 or 50 and still be having an experience or an emotional response to something that's based uh, back from you know, the very early part of their life. Because while there is plasticity in our neural pathways, uh, that 90% is, 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 is pretty much um, you know, static. Um, there, there, there can be some changes and that's really what happens in you know perhaps in some of the things that you do, but also in the work that I do with people in, in psychotherapy. And one of the, the ways of perhaps changing that, what you were asking is really about trying to bring into consciousness the connection between what that early experience was, how it impacted the individual at the time, and how perhaps it, at that time, you know, particularly if someone's quite young, we don't yet have the developmental capacity to process it in the way that we do as an adult. Mm. And so therefore, you're left with something that, that can't be processed, it can't be digested, and that's why it then doesn't actually move on. Because in order to be processed, it has to be kind of ingested and digested. And if the emotional and developmental capacity isn't there at that point in, in a child's life, then it sort of just sits there and actually doesn't gain any experience, it doesn't grow. So we physically grow, but maybe a part of our psyche doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you may encounter that. And so part of the, the, the work that I do is really trying to marry the present with the past and bring into consciousness you know, perhaps how difficult an experience may have been when somebody was five or six or seven or maybe it was even earlier in infancy, and how that has impacted them. Mm. And in beginning to understand that and maybe feel that experience for the first time, it's only then that somebody can actually move on from it. Because I think one of the the, the difficulties that... um, We face as human beings and 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 that you hear all the time sort of in if you think about I don't know modern parlance about oh Well, you know I had this experience and so I'm just gonna you know, but I've dealt with it I'm I'm moving on from it Mm. and I think actually that in reality certainly psychologically We cannot move on from something not fully until we've actually experienced it and felt it and if what has traumatized someone has occurred at a time before they had the developmental capacity to experience it, maybe they had to disassociate from it, maybe they had to cut off from it, um, they had to fragment in some way, they had to split it off, then they've actually not fully experienced it. And so it sort of remains within them, mm. a sort of, but still exerting influence unconsciously on their, on their behavior today, mm. you know, even though it may have been something that happened many years ago.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I can definitely think of where that would be true in myself and in other people I know. So how do you go about that? Do you have them relive that situation?
1: Well, I suppose the way I would approach it is not so much that they relive the situation, but in working closely with someone um, on a a regular basis, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, uh, you begin to try and bring to the surface, through their daily interactions, how... You know, the interaction at the office or the interaction with their partner, or maybe it was with somebody at university, how what's really going on there is a dynamic that they know very well and a dynamic that may have been created long ago. And, and gently and, and thoughtfully, and in a very, uh, uh, I think, in a very holding way, try and bring that in, into consciousness. But that can be you know quite a traumatic experience, and that's why sometimes it's helpful to see people you know twice, three times, four times a week, because depending on what their situation is, it may be that having that regular contact is quite important in working with someone through what can be quite a difficult um, transition and a, and, a, and a very difficult and painful realization of things that maybe they haven't been aware of, mm. that might have occurred quite early. Um, relationships with their caregiver whoever the primary caregiver may have been, um, all of those sorts of things. It's, um, people develop defense structures because at the time that the injury occurs psychologically it's a way of actually surviving. Mm. So defense structures are very important to people's existence and, and in working with those you need to be quite mindful and sensitive to that because yeah. they're, they're in place for a reason. They, they saved that person's life at some point. Mm. They enabled them to, to carry on when, uh, rather than say fragmenting, and, and, and you, know, you could have yeah. quite serious mental illness during some traumas if, if people weren't able to develop the kind of defense structures that they have.
0: Mm. But then it's precarious, maybe that's not exactly the right word, but then still allowing people the capacity to feel mm. and respond. To feelings, yeah. Maintaining this defense mechanism, I think, is 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 tricky.
1: It is, it is, and that's why I say this kind of very gentle holding approach, because Mm. you want to allow someone to really begin to um, have an emergence that comes from within themselves. Uh, You know, it's not about me sort of pointing something out Mm. to someone. It's 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 me reflecting what's happening in their lives and us thinking about it together. And I think one of the, at the essence, what, what I try to do with people is to develop enough of a reflective space, enough, enough of a thinking space, that somebody can, rather than reacting to a situation and say going off and eating, you know, something happens, they become distressed, they go off and eat, maybe they go off and drink alcohol, whatever the behavior mm. is, um, they can actually Reflect on it. They can say oh god. I'm feeling yeah. I'm feeling incredibly anxious. I want to eat Why do I want to do this? What's actually happening here? What is this making me think of and one of the things that often isn't developed when you have early trauma is that capacity to think? To reflect on one's behavior and and really to reflect on how one feels because what ends up happening is the emotional response gets cut off in some way Mm -hmm. either through dissociation we're splitting, um, you know, there's a variety of ways that, that, that we as human beings can protect ourselves. And, mm. and so they may be cut off entirely from the emotion and just go straight to the behavior. So it's reactive rather than being able to reflect on what's happening.
0: So it's one of the things that you, you do get people to slow down, reflect and think, how am I feeling before I reach for that food, that drink, mm. make a note of those feelings. Because I guess everything that we do, in a positive and a negative way, is trying to change how we feel. Mm. We're always trying to change how we feel. Whether mm. it's feel happier or, or muffle or subdue pain, it's a constant process of trying to change how you feel. Which I, th- I think is interesting. I read a really good book, I don't know if you've read it, Bessel van der Kolk, is, Volk, I think is the author. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. No, Have you no, read I this? It's no. very good. And there's a one case study he gives of a woman, and she's extraordinarily overweight, And she doesn't actually want to lose this weight. Um, And and there's a a wider context to this story. It's not the author trying to get her to lose the weight and she's saying, no, I don't want to. But in actual fact, what he uncovers is that she'd had um, trauma, she'd been sexually attacked, and her response to that was to make herself unnoticeable. So overweight Mm. was overlooked in Mm. her mind. She Mm. didn't get noticed for, or certainly stand out for, for any any reason, um, and that's how she wanted to keep it. So mm. she, she she literally cloaked herself in sort of comfort eating and fat to, to be to be overlooked, so she mm. could avoid this trauma. I'm sure there was a little bit more to it than that, but and perhaps
1: to feel safe to protect yeah, herself.
0: Yeah, a physical protection, a mm. layer of protection, mm. se- several layers. So I thought that it's a really good book, and I'll, I'll link to it in, in the notes. Um, what other thoughts have you got on emotional eating? I mean. It, I think a lot of people's eating is emotionally linked. I know that when I feel stressed, I will want to have sugar, Mm. whether it's dopamine or whatever it is, or a treat. I think I'm quite aware that that is what I'll go for. Mm. But what other observations have you got around emotional eating and how to help people move away from it? I know we've identified that being mindful of what we're eating is really important and Mm. and the the feelings, rather, before eating Mm. it. What else would you suggest?
1: well i guess i mean uh, really from 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 my perspective it's it's really about being attuned trying to work with someone t- so that they become attuned to what it is that's driving that response so say in your case you said okay i get stressed and i want to have sugar um it's about understanding well what is that actually what do you feel it's providing to you
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and i think that's 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 at the core of it, because if you don't understand that, you can't then begin to modify it. And so in that case, let's just say, for example, it might be that it provides a sense of comfort. Uh, for someone else, it might be control. For someone else, it might be a sense of um, aggression. It might be, I am actually going to deny myself that because I'm so fucking angry. Oh, mm. excuse my language, but you know. No, it's fine. Um, it, it's that kind of thing. So it's really trying to understand for that individual, what is it that that, that the emotional eating, what emotion is it actually that they're seeking to assuage? Mm. And uh, If you are stressed um, and, and you want sugar, maybe what you need to feel is actually a sense of, oh, I'm being held, I'm being contained, I'm being comforted. If you're doing it because you're angry, Uh, Maybe you're doing it because you need you feel impotent you Mm. feel powerless. And so I'm gonna do this because I'm Angry, and you know Mm. this is gonna make me feel potent So I think it's 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 fundamental to sort of understand with the individual say that you you might be working with what what does What drives the emotional eating? What is that uh, whatever it is that they're drawn to? What is it that they're feeling when they're drawn to it? But then what is it that they get from it or they perceive themselves as getting um, mm. So that you can understand what is the ultimately the emotion they're trying to escape from, because to your earlier point, you're talking about you know human beings always trying to change their emotional state, and I suppose I I take it a step further and say that human beings um, naturally will always, in in every instance, try and move away from pain. Mm. They will. They are pain averse. They are death averse. You know, unlike even some of our mammal counterparts, human beings are very unique in their instinct always to move away from death. Mm. And so, with that in mind, there there is likely going to be something that's quite distressing that somebody is seeking to escape. And for whatever reason, they have chosen food as the, uh, their source of, this is going to assuage whatever that feeling is I'm trying to escape. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, I suppose when you're you know, working with someone, it'll be really useful for you to sort of understand a bit more about, well, what is that they're, they're trying to escape? So, um, as I was saying, you know, what, what is it that, what's the emotion that is, is driving the behavior? And then when they engage in it, what are they really trying to mm. um, get away from? Because I think if they don't know that, then it's very difficult to actually take all of the techniques and the guidance and the insights that you're able to bring and put them into action. Because it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to try to put something over the top, this, this layer on top, but I don't really understand what the catalyst is that's mm. driving the behavior from the bottom. Yeah. Kind of thing. The one
0: thing that we have as uh, fitness professionals in our arsenal. Or our armory, which is incredibly powerful and I think vastly underappreciated, is the power of exercise Mm. for changing how you feel in a really positive Mm. way. Any dopamine hit you've been getting from drink or sex addiction or gambling or anything else can be very easily sorted. Exercise, Um, and I know with people who've had sort of chronic addiction problems, you know, there's there's a wariness about cross-addicting to something else. But exercise, for the majority of people, is such a powerful way of changing how you feel, of taking that control back. positively altering your hormones and your brain chemistry and everything else so Mm. that is um, that you know we're we're fortunate to have that to be able to advocate that and it's very very powerful. Mm. Um, We've got five minutes left it goes very quickly Mm. Um, I want to just touch on limiting beliefs because I think that that stops people from from changing as well. Mm. What are your thoughts on limiting beliefs and what we can do about them? Mm. I guess you know uh,
1: for limiting beliefs, it, really, I, I, I would see is that they're very much connected to what we were talking about in terms of, of eating. And I think limiting beliefs, it will be imperative to understand, well, what is the source of that belief? Um, and I imagine that in your work, I mean, you will encounter this all the time when somebody says, oh, I can't do that, or, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's not something that's available to me. And quite often, um, when it can be quite extraordinary to, when you begin to explore something like like that with someone, how often people don't feel entitled to actually feel what they feel. They don't feel entitled to actually exist sometimes. When you really begin to sort of um, go beneath the surface, that maybe they've come from an experience in which they weren't actually given much choice. Um, they may have been told what they were expected to be. Mm-hmm. They may have had a particular kind of mindset and set of expectations that were enforced upon them from a very young age. And so I think sometimes it's, it's, um, it can be quite profoundly um, moving and, and distressing when, when people can recognize that, that actually um, their view of themselves isn't one that evolved naturally, but one that may have been enforced on mm. them. And so oftentimes I would say uh, the majority of the, the work that I do will touch on that in some way, in that people are often trying to uh, getting a sense that actually I'm not sure who I am, because who I am today is the product of what I was told and through a series of expectations I was given but not something that I necessarily chose myself. And now I'm trying to figure out, well, what do I want for myself? Did mm-hmm. I really ever want to be, become a banker? Or did I want to become you know, an, an architect or a gardener or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. it, just as an example. Um, and I think that limiting beliefs are all connected with our vision of ourselves, our sense of selves. And I think if somebody has a tenuous sense of self, if, if, if they don't feel solid within themselves, then there's likely to be uh, somewhere, perhaps a prescripted, limited set of beliefs yeah. of, of what they can achieve, um, what is available to them, and what they mm. are entitled to.
0: Mm. And to bring that full, of full circle to the, the three powerful questions I talked about at the beginning, the why do you want this now? I think people will need to tap into those limiting beliefs and be aware of them and mm. perhaps backtrack and see where they have come from. Mm. I certainly think about a lot of the things that you've talked about, to come to that point of well, why is now the point at which I'm gonna change? Yeah. As opposed to letting these behaviours and these limiting beliefs carry me on for another five years or another ten years. Um, but that's been brilliant. It's it's been a really interesting discussion. It's it's a show well I don't know, we could let it run on, but I think we should stick within 30 minutes. Mm. So thank you. Where can people get hold of you? What are your website details? Um, How can people contact you?
1: Sure. I'm at se1psychotherapy.com. Um, and all of my details, um, my telephone number is on there, my email address. And you can either email me directly or people can fill out a web form. And What's your email uh, address? It's Orion, O-R-I-O-N at se1psychotherapy.com.
0: Okay, and I'll link to all that in the show notes. Brilliant, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, help us to reach more people by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that and it would help us to spread the good word even further. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next show.